Journey, we have a great treat in store for you today. Dr. Gary Brashears is here. He was in town speaking at Montana Bible College down at Grace Bible Church this week. He also spoke at Crew Campus Crusades uh, gathering on Wednesday night. And we're just thrilled to have Dr. Brashears here to unpack for us the Revelation's last word on salvation. Now, Gary certainly teaches at Western Seminary. He's a teaching elder at his church out in Portland. And uh, you might have run across his work without even knowing it. There's a guy named Mark Driscoll who pastors a church called Mars Hill in Seattle. And just about everything Mark writes, Gary co-authors. And so what a treat it is to have him. Will you please give a very, very warm Journey Church welcome to our friend Gary. Salvation, boy, what a great, great, great message. I'm just excited to be here, super to be a part of the journey experience. This is amazing you guys are doing here. Thank you for serving Jesus so well. It's really fun. When we think about salvation, now remember, I've got no voice this morning, so you guys got to be really good, you know, like no distractions like little kids moving around over here, nothing like this, because I've got to be right on target here. I am big time into kids. This is great. I love it. Salvation. You know, that's what we talk about all the time. And what does it mean? We're going to look here at the last word on salvation from the book of Revelation. And when I think about salvation, a big piece of that is what are we saved from? What is the problem? What is the catastrophe? What is the issue? What is the brokenness that we come from? And when I look at our world around us, and I I just found out Brian is a news junkie, and so am I. And when I look at stuff like the Occupy Wall Street type stuff, what is it that they want? Well, I, I looked at the website. They actually want eight legislative demands, like redoing the SEC, and then everything would be okay. And there's this kind of idea that all we need is optimism. All we need is positive spirit and everything will be okay. So President Obama ran on the phrase, yes, we can, dare to hope. And it's like just in hoping and being optimistic, it'll be okay. And it's not. There's this hope that, well, the devastation when Steve Jobs died, it's like, Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? There's no more eye devices coming from the brilliant mind of Steve Jobs. How are we going to solve all the problems of poverty and injustice without a new iPhone 5 whatever? Yes, I've got an iPad here. I'm not anti-technology by any means. But there's this simple optimism that comes through stuff. Uh, My friend Tim Mackey uh, lived in Jerusalem for a year. And They live near this place, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, what probably happened at this site like 2,000 years ago? What do you think might have happened? Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That's where who was crucified? Jesus. Yes, you can respond. It's okay. This, now the other place is the garden tomb, and there's a lot of debate among the archaeologists where the actual place is, and I don't care. Uh, but he walked by this place every Sunday on his way to church with Jessica. And the entrance to this place looks like this. I was there a few years ago. It's a magnificent ancient building celebrating the 
death, and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you come inside, it's incredibly ornate, offensively ornate to me, with the different chapels and all that sort of stuff. But down underneath there are nooks and crannies of places where you can go and meditate deeply. It's a pretty amazing place. At Easter, it looks like this. 10,000 people jam into this building to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing place. And every Sunday, Tim would walk past this place to go to the church they went to while they lived there in Jerusalem. And one day, as they walked past the place, where did you go by? What did you go by this morning on your way to church? Like, did you, any of you go place where Jesus died? You know, it's, it's just an amazing place. And as he's going there, and he went by this place, he saw this. And it's cute. Guy with a couple of kids pushing one in a baby buggy, you know, the little Jewish yamaluks on top. What's wrong with that picture? A father of two boys, obviously a loving family, should not be carrying an assault rifle. And see, the whole point is in every beauty, there's a brokenness. In every destruction, there's a magnificence. The death and disease and the demonic and disaster has pervaded every part of our reality. And that's why we need salvation. That's why we need to be redeemed. That's why we need Jesus. And the whole world system is built on the idea that we don't need God to solve our problems. And what we're saying is, we do. And the really cool thing is, God is already oriented towards saving us. So, Let's look at Scripture and see what it says about the brokenness world. We're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 2. So if you're a Bible guy, grab it. I'll put it up here as well. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. You, well, actually, there are five problems here in the Ephesians chapter 2 that it outlines in Paul's brief synopsis of the brokenness of this world. What's the first one? Well, the first one is that we were dead. Once you're dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. That's the first problem. So you can fill in the blanks there. Dead means separated from God. Death doesn't mean non-functional. It doesn't mean you're laying in a coffin not able to do anything. I mean, that's not the heart of death biblically. The heart of death biblically is that you're separated from God. It's like a divorce. Only in this particular case, God has done everything everything necessary for reconciliating the relationship. The continuing deadness is not on God's side. It's on our side. We are the ones who are dead. He's the one who's reaching to us. First problem is you're dead. Second problem, used to live in sin like the rest of the world. So what this means is that we're living according to the values of this world. And what are the values? What are the ways of success in our world today? Well, it has a lot to do with, are you a rugged, self-sufficient person? Are you an individualist who can make your own way? Uh, a lot of the values, a lot of the success in this world is around the idea of how beautiful you are, how athletic you are. Did you get your elk during bow season or during gun season? <laughs> you know, are you a... Montana State fan or a, well, I don't even mention the others in this town. <laughs> are you athletically in? Are you, your wealth is an indication of your status in society, your education, your job. And the world system is define yourself according to those kinds of things. And that's what matters. 
And when we buy into that, we neglect the realities of God and the call of Him to be humble and generous because those are not worldly values. We're living with the wrong values. Third problem, we're obeying the devil. The commander of the powers of the unseen world, he's a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. The third problem is we're obeying the wrong God. Now, who is the devil? For a lot of people, that's just a metaphorical picture of what's wrong in this world, but the Bible presents him as a real, living, personal, spiritual being, head of a whole group of spiritual beings we call categorically demons, the fallen angels, the gods of this world, and they are hostile, but they're heads of religions and heads of ethnicities, and they suck people into their worship and don't even know what they're doing. You don't have to be demon-possessed to be a part of serving the wrong god. But it's the values of the dominion of darkness. And the world is the same value. They're in league together. Third problem. Fourth problem. Fourth problem. We used to live following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. The fourth problem is we're satisfying the wrong desires. And the right desires are satisfying in the wrong way. And what that means is there's no satisfaction with it. There's short-term thrills, but not long-term satisfaction. It's like trying to stoke your thirst with seawater. It makes you more thirsty when you're doing it this way. The fifth problem is we're by nature children of wrath. So the fifth problem is really God is mad at us. If we stop there, this would be an absolute disaster But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, begins with two marvelous words. But God, who is so rich in mercy and loved us so much, He is not willing to leave us in that brokenness. He is reaching out to rescue and to die and rise so that we can have forgiveness and acceptance and newness of life. And that's the story I want to look at in the last word of salvation here in the book of Revelation. I'm going to take a look and put this in context. The first three chapters are the letters to the churches and the introduction. And in chapter 4, God call, an angel calls John up into heaven through this doorway, and this is what he sees. He sees an incredible being on a throne, four living creatures in front of him, myriads of angels, all worshiping, singing an incredible song of worship to the God of the universe, to the Yahweh, our Lord. And it's an awesome kind of thing. And as they go ahead, you see the elders throwing down their crowns in worship, dedicated attention to the God of the universe. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so right that God would get the worship because he is the gracious, omniscient, compassionate, holy Lord, creator of heaven and earth. But it goes on to chapter 5. In the beginning of chapter 5, the angel is calling. And he's pointing out a scroll. And this scroll is the plan for the redemption of the world. This scroll is the way of salvation. And as John looks, nobody is found who can open the scroll. And he begins to weep. If the scroll can't be opened, redemption cannot be done. And we would be hopelessly lost in our brokenness, the five problems of Ephesians chapter 2. And as he weeps, the angel said, look. 
And as he looks, he sees the lamb slain, who is also the lion of Judah. And this one comes to the scroll with full authority. And the praise breaks out for the lion, who is also a lamb. And the amazing thing is, the worship for the lamb is exactly the same as the worship for the Lord. And what we discover is this one, who is the lamb, is also the lion, who is also one to be worshipped. Now, who do we worship? God only. And this one who reaches up like a man is also the Lord of the universe, the lion slain from the foundation of the world. It's an amazing picture. And he goes on. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Brian preached that so well last week. I so enjoyed the way he unpacked the pestilence and the famine and the war. And the scroll opens up. And God moves in breaking down the the roles of evil. He goes on, and the fifth scroll is the fifth seal is the souls under the altar. These are the ones who have been persecuted. These are the ones who have been killed. And they're crying out, How long, O Lord, will you let the evil go on? How long before you stop it? And the Lord reaches down and says, And yet a little while. Gives him a white robe of righteousness. A bit of comfort. And he says, not yet are all the people pulled into salvation. Not yet is the number of persecution done. Sound like Acts 1.8. Where we're told to wait for the day of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And go on and take the message to the world. Yet there are people to be saved. It goes on with the wrath of the Lamb being poured out in the sixth seal. It's an incredible thing. Who will stand as wrath comes out? And who we see standing are the saints and the angels. Even as the wrath comes out, it's aimed toward evil. And we stand because we're sealed by the saints. The trumpets sound horrific judgment on the whole earth. And I find myself asking, as I listen through the book of Revelation, why is God so angry? Why the wrath of the Lamb that is so devastating? I thought God was a God of compassion and grace and love and restoration. And indeed, He is. Well, the text tells us at the end of chapter 9, the people who did not die in the plagues of the trumpets and the bowls still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship the demons and the idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or of their thefts. They will not repent. That's why it keeps going on. It tells us in chapter 11, We give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is, who always was, for now you have assumed your great power 
and have begun to reign. The nations are filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It's time of judge the dead and reward your servants and prophets as well as your holy people, all who fear your name, from the leaders to the grace. It is time to destroy whom? Those who are destroying the earth. Why is God doing it? Because he's going to stop the evil. But you know the amazing thing is this warfare is not primarily aimed at people. In fact, this warfare does not destroy but draws people unless they refuse it. The warfare is in chapter 12. And in chapter 12 we see the dragon, that ancient serpent, Satan, the head of the dominion of darkness. That's where it is. And Michael is fighting him. And as Michael and, go ahead, Michael is fighting, there's a war in heaven, and the dragon is defeated in the heavenlies. This battle, this cosmic spiritual warfare that's been going on from before creation, and he is defeated. And he's defeated by the blood of the Lamb. He's defeated by the word of the testimony of the saints. He's defeated by them who will endure even unto death. And he is hurled down to earth. And he's hateful and hating and destroying particularly those who are associated with the Lamb because he hates the Lamb who is a lion. And the battle goes on. The dragon needs help. So he gets the, the sea beast and the sea beast and the earth beast and the dragon come together in an unholy trinity of a sort. The sea beast is the, the, the lion. I'll get it right here. The serpent is Satan. Go ahead to the next slide. The serpent is the dragon. And this dragon is the devil. The sea beast... The sea beast is the government in the business, but it's the false government that's in line with the way of the world. The third beast, the earth beast, is the false religion. This is the false religion that says you can have everything you need spiritually, but you don't need Jesus. You can have everything you need religiously, but you don't need to have forgiveness of sin. And it's offering this without dealing with Jesus. And it's very attractive to have the spiritual ecstasy and not have to deal with the reality of sin. And as this concludes in chapter 17, it's, John portrays this as a great prostitute. And this prostitute is luring people into her trap. And he sings the song of Babylon the earthly governmental power. And these two work together. And in chapter 19, we finally come to this. After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting. What are they shouting? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God, and his judgments are true and just, he says. It's a great picture. It's a great picture. As we go along, praise the Lord. He has punished the great prostitute, corrupted the earth with her immoralities, avenged the murders of the saints, and again their voices rang out, praise the Lord. The smoke that from the city ascends forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshipped God 
who was sitting on the throne, they cried out, Amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. And I heard again what sounded like a shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of thunders. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. What do you notice through here all the way through? It's a song. It's a beautiful song. It's a community song. Go ahead to the next slide. This we see here is a community song that we sing together. And it's a praise the Lord. But you know, the thing that happens, this song is not only a song of praise, it's also a battle song. Because it's a song of war against the great prostitute. It's a song of battle against Satan himself. So we, and we sing this song together. And part of salvation is singing this song. That's why we do the singing here. Is because a big piece of salvation is gathering together in corporation and singing. You know what's an amazing thing? How little congregational singing there is these days in our world? There's a lot of performances. But what we do here, we gather together and sing together, is something unique to the church. It's something, a salvation thing, because when we sing that, we're singing being brought together by the blood of the Lamb. The story goes on past the song. Revelation 19.7 Let us be glad, let us rejoice, and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride. And he has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of white linen to wear. Here at this marvelous wedding feast. For the white fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Now think a little bit here. God's salvation looks like a, a a feast. Isaiah chapter 25 talks about this. And it talks about the armies of heaven preparing a feast with the finest wine and the choicest meats. And we have this feast together to celebrate. It's a community meal. And the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is when I look at this, let's go back one slide if we can here. I want to see this passage. Can we do that? What will you wear to this feast? What will you wear when we sit down at table with Jesus Christ? You wear garments of fine linen. And what is that fine linen according to John the Apostle? It's your righteous deeds. You right now, I right now, we right now are preparing, sewing our wedding garment for the wedding feast of the Lamb when we'll sit down with Jesus and we'll have this incredible feast and you, I, we are creating our wedding garments right now. And those things are the deeds of righteousness. 
Now, then a little further on your notes, I have a summary of what righteousness is about. And if you look there on your notes page, you'll see what the summary of righteousness is. The basic idea of righteousness, first of all, righteous people like Jesus. I mean, they really like Jesus. A second thing that righteous deeds are, are those people who like Jesus. I mean, like the real Jesus. We don't get to design our own Jesus. But when you look at the Jesus of Scripture, people like him. The ones who are in the kingdom of light. And then there's this desire, because I like him, I want to be like him. And it's an us thing together. And the idea of righteousness. In American, the word righteousness means a good guy who keeps the rules. But the biblical idea of righteousness is far broader than that. A lot of evangelicals say righteousness is something that Jesus earned while he was here on earth and it's imputed to us. And that's true, but that's only a piece of righteousness. Righteousness, biblically, the idea of righteousness is life as a community with all relationships. Relationships to God, to other people, to self, to land. All relationships, shalomed, flourishing as God intended to be, full of joy. And that's when we talk about righteousness, and that's what we're about. And when we have this meal together, we are celebrating the power of God to move a whole community to that kind of righteousness for all relationships as they should be. And it's not just the community of the saints. It reaches out everywhere as God does his work. It's an amazing picture. And we'll gather together in a few minutes and we'll have this Eucharist meal together. And in this time, we'll take simple elements, bread and wine or juice. And in these simple elements, we will have a family meal. And in this time, the boundary between time and eternity will grow thin. And as we reach through that boundary, we'll reach back to the cross where Jesus died for the forgiveness of all sin. We'll reach back to Calvary where Jesus rose to newness of life to share that with us. We'll reach forward to prepare for the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we're practicing as we do this Eucharist meal, very common family meal for that day, when we do it in the presence of the Lamb in full glory. Because He is righteous. So we are doing a family meal. Go ahead. A family meal. Then He goes on. I saw heaven opened, a white horse standing there. The writer was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. And it goes on. The armies of heaven drifted in finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. And this is the way that Pat Marvlinko Smith pictured this picture. Pretty amazing. 
the picture of the rider on the white horse. I love her pictures of Revelation. The rider on the white horse, the next piece of salvation, not just a community song, not just a family meal, but a just war. Because salvation goes on. There is an evil in this world that must be conquered. It's not just gathering together for a meal where we celebrate. It's also going out to participate in the overcoming of evil. But in this just war, when we do it now, we don't do it with weapons of violence. We do it with mercy and forgiveness and the good word of hope that comes in Jesus Christ that overcomes evil with good, the end of Romans chapter 12. We overcome evil with good now. If your enemy strikes you, you feed him. It's a different way of doing things. Salvation is a community song, a family meal, a just war, and the picture goes on. The angel comes, Revelation chapter 20, with a chain, and he takes the great dragon, and he chains him up and throws him in a pit. And I say, go for it. And at the end of the millennium, he takes that one and throws him into the lake of fire. And with him goes the beast and the false prophet. I'd love that picture. I want him gone so badly. And as we go on, the story continues. John is taken by the angel, and he gets a vision of the new Jerusalem, the new earth. That's what Brian will preach on next week and talk about that. You know, it's pretty amazing because behind it all is this worship song. They sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The incredible song that the whole universe will sing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea, and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. The 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. What an incredible picture. A song of worship. A simple meal as family. A war against evil. I find myself thinking with this. Like the saints on the altar. How long? How long? In the pastoral side of my life, I deal with some of the horrible, horrible things. A father who has let his desires go into the evils of pornography and the violence. And when he comes home to his little children, like this little guy over here, his anger and his violence comes out on his kids and they're scarred for life. And I hate it. I deal with people who are fine, moral, religious people 
And there's a hypocritical veneer over the internal side that's critical and caustic and sarcastic and hateful. And I see the impact that that woman's attitude has on her husband. And I hate it. I see in myself... that competitive spirit that comes out in I gotta win and I hate it stop it God stop it but you know what happens I want to destroy it now and I really do And what God says is, I've got a better idea. Instead of destroying people, let's redeem them. The man who had let his mind go into the horrors of internet pornography and the violence there, entertaining the things that were there and having it come out on his wife and his children, I got to sit with that man just recently. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I got to see that trash go out of his life. Now, he's got a long road to go yet. But I watched him and his wife just recently. They're separated now. But as they came back together and spent some time in prayer together, there's hope. Because you see, the salvation goes everywhere and everyone. And this last verse, Revelation 22, is just amazing to me. Then the angel showed me a river with the river of life. Clear as crystal, Revelation 22, verse 1, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's an amazing picture. And as that picture goes on there in Revelation 22, pointing to new earth, it finishes up with this wonderful thing. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Anyone who hears this say, Come. If anyone is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires come and drink freely of the water of life. Some of you are here and you haven't come to that spot where you look at your own sin and say, I need forgiveness. Look at your own brokenness and say, I need newness of life. Today's a really good day. Today would be a marvelous day to confess and say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. Jesus, I need your newness. Holy Spirit, I need you in my life. Because I need the courage to admit the brokenness and the evil that's there. This would be a very good day to connect in with Jesus. Some of you have been followers of Jesus for a long time. And you need that newness of the ongoing salvation that begins with confession. We speak out from the heart what's there to Jesus and hear his forgiveness, his acceptance his salvation 
Lord Jesus, how we praise you for being the one who did not stop and destroy evil, but for being the one who comes in all grace to die for our brokenness, to die for our forgiveness of our sin, to be risen again for newness of life so that those horrific lies can be overcome, the seductive ways of the great whore can be replaced by the beauty of the bride. And I pray that as we have this moment together to celebrate the song, to have this community meal, and to go into the redemptive war, that you will empower us and give us the courage to receive your newness. And I pray this in Jesus' name.